Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who finally saved up enough money to buy a new house in San Francisco. It's a three-square-foot house made of Legos, but in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know around tech and beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chair is Connor Doherty, an economics and housing reporter for The New York Times. He's the author of a new book about economic inequality called Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. It explains the causes and effects of the housing crisis in San Francisco and asks if this city is really the model for the future of the country. Connor, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you so much for so having me. So we know each other. Yes. Uh, you've been covering a topic that's not near and dear to my heart, but something I'm super interested in. And I, there's lots of ways we're going to go here. Um, but let's start first about how you decided to do this. You've been working at the Times doing a lot of different things, correct? You hadn't been covering this. I was originally hired. So I covered housing for 10 years for the Wall Street Journal, economics and housing. And mm-hmm. I was hired to cover Google. Mm-hmm. I remember. At, at the Times, and I did that for maybe all of 18 months. Uh-huh. I probably shouldn't say this, but I was not the best corporate reporter. <laughs> I, 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 I was really proud of some of my stories, uh-huh. but uh, I was never so great at getting super deep inside the company. Uh-huh. And I liked covering— Why did you want to cover Google? That was Because Google—we'll talk about Google I want, and the impact. Since— you have no tolerance for evasion. I just wanted to get a job at the Times, and yeah. they offered me that job. Yeah. So, I mean, I was excited. as I When I took the job, I thought to myself, this will be something totally new. Let's dive into it. And I was out in the Bay Area. I'd been in New York for 10 years. And I thought to myself, and this is a great segue into housing, okay, I'm here now. If you want to be a reporter in this place, you got to get in right. to the to the company town. So I thought that would be a great way to do it. And it did lead me to housing and all this other stuff. Right, because Google is related to housing. And actually, oddly enough, you may or may not know this, how interested they are in housing um, and Super. office and commuting and things like that. It's, it's a big interest of, I think, more Sergey than Larry, which is interesting. I've had many, many discussions with him about commuting and bicycles. I remember when he first dropped all the bicycles in a livable city. So it's interesting, though they— Many people blame them for it. We'll get into that in a second. I will say, for what it's worth, when I covered Google, I tried to interview Larry. Of course, never was successful, but I did corner him at events a couple times. Yeah. And he always blew me off, and I asked him about different tech topics, and he always gave me that I'm bored look he gives you. <laughs> but the one time I did ask him a housing question, he just lit up and got very into it. It was the one time I asked him a question, 
And he looked at me and really engaged and gave a long answer. So I Mm -hmm. did find that indicative. Yeah, they've always been thinking about that, what headquarters are. And in fact, in the headquarters, they used to have nine different office types. They had a Quonset hut at one point in the early days. People don't recall that, but they really have been. That said, they've been sort of linked to the problem in in San Francisco, excuse me. So talk about why you decided to do this. Obviously, housing is an enormous issue around this country. We had the housing uh, crisis that we had, the controversy. But in San Francisco, it's a particularly unusual situation, or maybe it isn't. Why don't you describe it? I think it's particularly unusual in that it's the worst version of something yes. every city has. But I, one of the things I've struggled with with the book is— I, I almost struggled, but a lot of people want to see San Francisco as this truly exceptional, anomalous place, and it's mm-hmm. not. It's just— a version of some—it's it, it's an early and amplified version of something that is happening everywhere. I mean, I did travel pretty extensively for the book. I went to Minneapolis, Boston, Vancouver, British Columbia, a couple other places that were in, had the same basic problem. Mm-hmm. And aside from the magnitude and the political culture, it, it was the same. So I, I think San Francisco is—I really do believe it is an early look at the nation's future. And when I say San Francisco, I obviously mean the whole greater Bay Area. The mega cities. The the bigger cities. Because I think one of the demographic trends is obviously bigger cities and how we cope with those. How we cope with most people living in them. So So, so, so paint San Francisco's picture. This is a city that, now let's be clear, it has limited space. Now, you talked about enormous amounts of space. It has just what it has. The city of San Francisco only does. But I mean, obviously the 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 outlying area. Mm -hmm. So my... Short origin story, which I think your listeners will like, is that I was covering Google and I was talking to Jeremy Stoppelman mm-hmm. about which you know He's his favorite the CEO of Yelp. Sorry, I'm, about what you know his favorite topic is, which is how much he hates Google and how much the yes. government should be uh, intervening, I- I- doing antitrust enforcement and all that. And at the end of the interview, I, I often try to leave a couple minutes for some random question to sort of see if I could keep my story ideas going. I asked him. I said, "Well, I heard your." into housing and you're interested in this horrible housing crisis we have. And he told me, oh, I've given a bunch of money to this woman. Her name is Sonia Trials. She's a little kooky. She runs this group called BARF, the Bay Area Renters Federation. And I thought, that's odd. Here's this guy who obviously had quite a lot of money. If you really wanted to get involved in local politics in a traditional way, he's got more than enough money to do that. Mm-hmm. CEO of a publicly traded company. And also, as I'm sure you know, Jeremy, he's he's not like one of these talking about singularity all the time. No. He's a very serious guy. So, and straight and narrow kind of guy. Uh, and I... I thought that's odd. So I called Sonia up and then I went and hung out with her for a couple days and watched her kind of go to City Hall and complain about housing. And all, she had all these followers and all these young people really, mm-hmm. when I say young, I obviously mean like 25 to 35, engaged in her thing. And there really was something going on there. As an economics reporter, I was hyper aware, maybe more than most people, that there was a ton of research that this housing thing was a big problem and that it had been a big problem for a long time. Mm-hmm. Ed Glazer, who is this Harvard economist who's very famous for having called that there was a big housing crisis. I knew all his research out was out there. And the Obama administration, right around the same time I met Sonia, had started to release papers on this too. So in my mind, I thought, this is a wonderful illustration of this very wonky topic. Mm-hmm. Here's the first time I've seen someone who who is looking for housing and is aware yeah. that there is a housing shortage. Yeah. And in the past, the story had always been much more academic. Say It was just a very boring, very right. dry right. So. I latched on to that Yimby story mostly because— Yes, in my backyard. Yes, in my backyard, because it was a great way to illustrate 
basically academic research. And, right. and that led me, of course, to a million other things. The so book the has, idea is YIMBY is this yes in my backyard, a very famous word is NIMBY, which is not in my backyard. Yes. Don't build here. Don't do density building. And for those who don't know San Francisco, there is hardly any density building. There's, It's the lowest uh, profile city, one of them that I've ever seen, maybe some European cities, but they're a denser, actually, um, in, and especially, and they have better uh, public transportation throughout. Um, but it, it's there's not a lot of housing. There's not enough housing. Um, and throughout California, that's an issue. I think it was, what, 33 million housing units? Is that correct? Or 35 million? What was it? Uh, I don't actually know the answer. I do know that California has less per capita housing than any other state besides Utah. Mm-hmm. And that's actually an anomaly because Utah has much larger families. Right. So it really is the, the worst. So what, what it is is that you don't have enough housing. And then at the same time, you have this congregation of very wealthy people wanting to live in cities. And there's a trend, a demographic trend towards young people wanting to stay in cities versus go, fleeing to the suburbs which had been happening for years. So it's a return, uh, essentially, to people with lots and lots of money. Then there was the tech money, and we'll get into that in a second. So you had a situation that was sort of ripe for what happened. So explain what happened. So you had these YIMBY people saying, we got to build here. And you have this group of local San Francisco people, often wealthy people, who don't want you to build and keep it as adorable as it is. San Francisco, for all its history, and I've read a lot of history about the place and California generally, has always it's always this perfect people show up and it the the version that they see when they show up is perfect mm-hmm. and i think that that's certainly part of the place as you well know, the actual city of San Francisco had started to become much more of a tech hub than it had ever been. Mm-hmm. Companies like Salesforce and Twitter and other companies and Uber were actually being located That's in right. the city of San Francisco. This, of course, led to the tech buses because well, sort of the opposite, meaning that the companies that were down in the valley were sending buses up to get people who now wanted explain to— explain these buses uh, for those. Yes, there are these large double-decker buses with— Darth Vader tinted windows, and uh, you see these. You you can be in a very kind of quiet neighborhood in San Francisco with just two lane streets, and this giant bus will be on the corner, and you will see all these people in their Bose headphones and their backpacks and their casually dressed tech uniforms lined up, ready to go into Mm -hmm. these buses. And uh, this became a very a galvanizing moment for the city because it really looked like a two-tier system. Here was these, you know, the San Francisco public transit is not terribly good, and here are these these people. And, and, and of course, on top of that, you read all these stories, oh, they get f- amazing health care and free food and child care at work and all the gyms and all these things, and here are these amazing buses. And I think that this, I talk about this a little bit in the book, I think this started creating the perception about people is that these people do not have a stake in this city, they they come here, they use it as a vessel, but they aren't uh, particularly worried right. about its public systems. It's it, it, they do not have a, a a kind of common good in it. And at the same time, if you recall, there was also this somewhat famous viral video where a bunch of uh, employees of some company, I forget, had reserved a soccer field and got into a big yes. uh, fight with the with Latino kids in the mission who had used that soccer field for years and years and years. And it became this very intellectual argument where the the tech guys were like, we reserved this online. And the, and the young guy was saying, we play here every Saturday. There's no reserving. So I think that there was this, uh, fairly or unfairly, there was this reckoning over the idea that Tech people were coming and erecting their own systems that mm-hmm. existed separately that were from better. 
Yeah, and and well, that they felt were better. The buses solved the problem. Yeah, and I understand. I obviously understand where the company's coming from. They're like, we need people. They are up there. We're going to send buses to get them. Right. It's not our fault that this city does not have great, or this region does not have great public transit. And they're growing so fast. I mean, look how many people. Right, and we'll bypass uh, yeah, them with so, our better, including so, they were thinking about hydrofoils. There was all kinds oh, of Oh, God, stuff. yeah. There was, uh, there, I think they did actually run a couple boats uh, in, in, just as a test run a couple times. So, yeah. so transportation is obviously a huge problem, and it's a huge problem that everybody in that region is experiencing. And I think that it led to a lot of resentment that, they're not trying to solve this problem for the region the way that public goods or the subway or any other Previous thing. Previous large companies yeah, were. And uh, they're trying to solve it for themselves only. And I think that became a very galvanizing. On top of that was obviously there were a number of studies uh, about this that everywhere they created a tech bus stop, the rents would go up. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where the Yimby thing comes in. Yes, in my backyard. Sonia, who is this, who's not from the tech industry, she Mm -hmm. was a high school teacher, but the tech industry quickly latched onto her. And I don't just mean Jeremy, all the people who would show up to meetings with her were tended to be 25-year-old engineers, that sort of thing. She showed up and said, this is not a a, a tech problem, this is a housing problem. You created all these jobs, all these people want to come here. If you recall, I mean, the rest of the country was still recovering from the Great Recession at that time. So... I think unemployment was still quite high nationally and good employment was still quite low. That remains low. So all these people were coming to the Bay Area and in her mind, because she's from Philadelphia, which if you've ever been to Philadelphia, it's a lovely city, but there are still some pretty depressed parts of it. Yes, and it has, I was born in Philadelphia. So it has entire blocks of empty property. Mm-hmm. She said, look, this is a housing problem, not a tech problem. And I think that the tech industry really glommed onto that because – her, and a, we can talk about this because you said you wanted to, mm-hmm. Kim Mike Cutler, a woman at TechCrunch who's mm-hmm. now uh, at uh, Initialized Capital, she wrote this piece called How Burrowing Owls Lead to Vomiting Anarchists that was all about the tech bus protests and the essential gist of the piece was this is not a bus problem, this is a housing problem. Mm-hmm. So there was all this kind of, let's right. call it, backlash. And I think that a lot of the people in the tech industry liked glommed onto this, partly because these were people saying, this is not your fault. And they got very into history and very into economics, reading about the housing shortage, reading about how the Bay Area has this long history of nimbyism. And I think what happened was people in the tech industry loved this topic, partly because it was true. So I should say the the research, the Bay Area does mm-hmm. have a housing problem, I'm not. But also because this was a a group of people, a movement, an ideology that was saying, this is not your fault. Right. This is the region's fault for having bad public policy. I think we've gotten to a more nuanced conversation, but when we're talking about the origins at the beginning, I really think partly it was people saying, people were very attracted to this idea that here is a a group that has absolved us of guilt for merely coming here. And, Mm -hmm. And I truly sympathize with some of those people. You're whatever, 22 years old, you go to college for computer science, you work very hard in these mathy classes while all your friends are writing papers about, you know, some easy topic and getting high and writing. Mm -hmm. I'm joking, but I was a STEM major and it is much harder. I was a a physical chemistry major. And they moved to San Francisco for a good job. And wherever they're from, I met this one guy, he was from some tiny little town in Kansas. And he was like, well, San Francisco sounds like a great place. And you read all this romance and then everyone hates you merely for showing up. And I think it's hard for people who are 
And you have to underscore, there are, there are signs all over the place. There's all kinds Text of— Text gum was stenciled on the— All um, over the place. Yeah, and, and I think I understand why they were—why there was a backlash, because it's not fair either. All right, well, let's talk about what it had the impact, and then we'll get into the overall, the bigger problem, yes. which I think you talk about quite eloquently so in this the, book. So I should say, so the book kind of follows this, the arc of the, in the part, one of the arcs, there's many arcs in the book, follows Sonia and this rise and this Yimby thing, and it became very, very powerful and kind of looks at how it began at that origin, which I was there for, and then by the end they're running for office and they got tons of money. CZI has given them a lot of money. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're here with Connor Doherty. He's written a book called Golden Gates, Fighting for the Housing in America. It's about San Francisco, but it's about our country, and we'll talk about that larger issue when we get back. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We're here with Connor Doherty. He's the author of Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. He's also a New York Times reporter covering income inequality and issue housing around the Bay Area, but around the country, too. But the Bay Area has become sort of this flashpoint of, ho- of homelessness, this issue around who gets to pay for these things, who can live in cities if they're livable cities for anybody who isn't very wealthy. Um, so let's paint the picture. So you have the tech people coming in. The rents do go up, um, and they move in t- and move and renovate and buy. I, anyone who's bought a house in San Francisco knows the process is shocking in terms of, of when I bought a house here in D.C., I was sort of amazed by the ease of it. Like, and, the, and they have a housing issue here, and it was sort of, you know, at one point I'm like, I'll take three or something because it's so crazy. It's such a crazy thing that you're used to in San Francisco. So there's not enough housing. The housing prices go up. What has happened? Talk about sort of paint the picture of San Francisco right now. What happened is, for starters, it starts to feel much, much, much more like a monoculture. Right. You, so there was a great article in the San Francisco Chronicle that I think the headline was The Graying of San Francisco. And you can see as people buy these homes, they paint them. I think it's called gentrification gray. <laughs> and the and San Francisco is known for having these lovely, colorful homes. Yes. And then suddenly there are these gray homes. Uh, on top of that, just the prices go up to levels you cannot imagine. Mm-hmm. On top of that, uh, there were a number of things. There, there, of course, were some very, very public evictions. 
there was a thing in San Francisco in, the, in all of California called Ellis Act evictions, which is when right. someone buys a place that a tenant lives in and tells them, you have to leave because I'm just going to move in. Mm-hmm. This started to become a a way to create condos. So people would buy what were effectively apartment buildings and say, I'm going to move in. But then they didn't really move in. They they, they flipped them to condos. And and so across the, the city, you started to see the in, influx of wealth, the, a wealth that kind of lived on its own. Because if you think about it, the actual number of people who work in tech is still not in San Francisco is still not that high. It's mm-hmm. like seven or eight percent or something. But the influence it has on the city and specifically its real estate prices is way outsized. I think it's like forty or fifty percent of the people who buy who are buying homes in San Francisco are from tech, but the actual employment is not that high. Right. On top of that, the homeless problem, which is always it should be said, has always been a problem in or since the eighties has been a problem in San Francisco. But it just got so, so, so much worse. So talk about how that happened. Because there was a, a discernible shift in the way San Francisco homeless be- just exploded. And I've lived there for 20-some years. Um, and it, the shift was dramatic and quickly, even though there was always a homeless problem. It became something much more uh, significant. And, of course, it's gotten nationwide and worldwide attention. Yeah, and it's just a simple cascading effect. You have uh, the home prices go up and— Everyone moves down a notch. The, uh, the um, so I'll, I'll give you a, a, an anecdote from the book. I followed uh, a family in Redwood City as they were displaced by a landlord. So this was a 15 year old girl. She, her mom is a who d- does elder care, cleans houses, and and moonlights as a janitor. So she's the woman who takes care of your grandma, the mm-hmm. woman who cleans your house under the table, and then the woman who comes in and empties the trash can as you are leaving your office. So this woman, they got an $800 rent increase. The guy bought the building, gave them an $800 rent increase. So they all organize to fight this rent increase. It goes on for a couple months. Spoiler, they don't win. They do get a buyout. So then I went back. So they move out. I went back. Who moves in? Of course, throughout the fight and the process, people say, somebody from Facebook's going to move in. This, this is the only people who could afford this. I go in. It's another... Uh, Latino family with the uh, almost the exact same job profile. The sons worked construction and the mom did uh, house cleaning and, and some other things. But they had just stuffed like eight people into this place that used to have sure. four. So across the housing spectrum, you see people crowding in. You see tons of tech people into crowding into higher-end apartments. Mm-hmm. And so there's this cascading effect. And the people at the very, 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 very bottom are pushed out and they just go to the streets. And I think that that is, I think it's pure and simple that there's a lot more people. Mm-hmm. They are much, much more willing to crowd into places and kind of bulk up to compete to meet the higher rents. And the people at the very bottom, I should note, uh, homeless people, this is not universally true, but it is largely true. I've spent a lot of time with homeless people. They often do not have the greatest bonds. Their family ties are not super strong. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to have the best community or friends. And so those are the people who get pushed out. And obviously, there's a large degree of mental health and uh drug addiction problems amongst homeless people, but that does not explain it. The price explains it because there are, of course, 
lots of people struggling with substance abuse problems and mental difficulties all around the country, and they don't have horrific homeless problems all around the country. All right. One of the the things you write is, what this suggests is the real solution will have to be sociological, which I thought this was a great part. It was in the the excerpt you had. It was a great part of the book. People have to realize that homelessness is connected to housing prices. They have to accept it's hypocritical, say you don't like density but are worried about climate change. They have to internalize the lesson if they want their children to have a stable financial future. They're going to have to make space. They're going to have to change. It's interesting the reaction to homelessness in San Francisco. It's changed the the nature of the city. It's it's changed the relationship between people. Talk a little bit about that because you spend a lot of time trying really hard not to be angry at a citizen, at the same time to be empathetic to the people living in the street, and and to avoid feelings of hopelessness because that's what it sometimes feels like when you're walking in San Francisco is like, what can we do? Is there a solution? I, I totally agree with you. It's this sense of dread as you walk through the city and you feel like a horrible person all the time. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I will say this real quick. My colleague, Tom Fuller, Thomas Fuller at the mm-hmm. New York Times, when he first showed up from Thailand, he started writing about homelessness a lot. So I'm from San Francisco, as you know, and a number of my friends complained. They said, oh, I, I've noticed your new New York Times guy just discovered homelessness. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of giving me a hard time about him yeah. writing. And I said, well, maybe shame on us for thinking this was normal. I I think he's doing absolutely a good job showing up and saying, this is insane. Uh, So I think you do start to think, oh, this is just normal. And the fact that you accept it is kind of shameful in in itself. I, I should say, I'm... I, I was certainly guilty amongst the number of people who who accepted it. I think that there is this feeling of hopelessness because you don't know what to do. Do I give a dollar to somebody? Uh, is that going to help? Do I give money to St. Anthony's? That, that obviously helps. It's a wonderful organization that is a, a soup kitchen. If they build a bunch of housing, but it's like high-end housing, that's obviously not going to really help the homeless situation, even though we do need to build the housing in San Francisco. So I think it's I think it's this feeling of it's this complete feeling of helplessness. And by the way, you obviously see this amongst the city as well. They seem I mean, look at Gavin Newsom, that's the governor, but when he was mayor, now when he's governor, it's just nobody knows what to do. And and where you really see this is there's these, go to Oakland, which is considerably worse than San Francisco, there are entire parks that are just colonized by tents and everybody has just come to accept it and doesn't know what to do. So, and I think that is where we are. I mean, what we need to do is just build a ton of supportive housing and where and how we do that is is our inaction, but that's I don't really see. So we're going to get to solutions. The last part, but one of the things you talked about is is this idea, and you say one need only look out the airplane window to see that there's nothing to do with the lack of space. It's the concentration of opportunity and the rising cost of being near it. It says much about today's winner take all economy that many of the cities with the most glaring ep- epidemics of homelessness and our growing centers have technology and finance. There is simply put a dire shortage of housing in places where people and companies want to live, and reactionary local politics that fight every effort to add more homes. So, so if talk you, about that because you had an yeah, excerpt in the Times totally. about that, but this. It's a theme throughout this book is that people resisting what is the obvious solution is build more housing. Totally. So I'll just say two things. One is the economy has changed. We all know this. Mm-hmm. We have the economy has kind of bifurcated into, let's call them knowledge workers who tend to be paid relatively well mm-hmm. and work with their minds. And then service workers who tend to be, some are paid quite well, like surgeons and stuff, but there's this other, this entire class of, say, retail workers, uh, 
people who clean your homes, walk your dogs, all these sorts of things th- that, that are not paid very well. Those people have to be next to each other in cities because intellectual workers tend to want to be near each other for all the – to exchange ideas and all these things. And then the service workers essentially have to be close to them because they are Way typically – Exactly. They cannot remote dog walk, that sort of thing. So cities are – let's say, engines of inequality. Now, I'm not saying that's bad. Mm-hmm. In, in a perfect world, cities have lots of opportunities for people to to move into the, I mean, and their kids to get better mm-hmm. educated and all that. But we have to have housing for those two groups of people mm-hmm. or else the thing will fall apart and we'll get what we have today. So that's our economy around the country. We are moving in a knowledge direction that is not going to change. There is going to be a certain amount of service, a large service sector for things that robots can't do yet. And that is where we are. So that's not changing. So accepting that reality and accepting that we need to construct our cities for that reality is step one. What we need to do is build a lot more housing and make it easier to build housing and make it easier to build different types of housing. The way we have it in the Bay Area, which is true all around the country, uh, this is true here in D.C., is we have a whole bunch of single-family home neighborhoods or relatively low-density neighborhoods that are, in effect, off-limits. And single-family homes, one family lives in them, right? Yes, than... or, or, you know, there are duplexes and other things. Right. But there is the existing housing stock and nothing will touch it. There are a couple projects here and there, but generally speaking, those neighborhoods are off-limits. And then we have an area like South of Market, which is this former warehouse district over by the bay where the, the there used to be an industrial area when I was growing up. That is like we build a ton of condos that have 10 million, and, and it's like a whole new neighborhood out of whole cloth. You see that same pattern in every city across yep, America. In, in, there's the wharf in D.C., there's the North Loop in Minneapolis, there's Hudson Yards in New York. All around the country, people seem to have said, okay, we need to build more housing. Let's go take this one district over here that used to be some industrial district and build a ton of stuff over there and build it as tall as humanly possible and make a, whole, a neighborhood from whole cloth. That is not working because those buildings, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I am saying those buildings are super expensive. They, they're they super high and require elevators. Once The way construction costs works, once you add an elevator, you are in a whole other class of cost. Mm-hmm. But what they call the missing middle housing, which is housing that is middle-sized, but also for middle-income people, that housing is essentially pr- is not allowed. You mm-hmm. can't build... A, a ton of duplexes, row homes. I mean, go to places like Philadelphia or Baltimore where you see, uh, it doesn't look super attractive right now, but where you see that they had lots of, of housing and affordable housing. It's not high rises everywhere. It's these dense kind of three and four story places. Mm-hmm. That is what we don't allow right now. One of the images I always uh, think of when I, I actually asked at one point if this could be the cover of the book, but they didn't like it for some reason, is if you go look at this famous, famous, famous picture that everybody who's listening and people around the world know, it's the picture of the painted ladies. The painted ladies are these, as everyone knows, they are the opening of Full House. They are these, I think it's four, it's five or but six homes bunch, yeah. uh, that are in a row and these, these beautiful single-family homes and you can see the San Francisco skyline now dominated by the Salesforce right. Tower behind it and it's on Alamos Grand it's a beautiful park mm-hmm. and it goes down a hill. When you look at that picture, which was, again, the opening of the credits of Full House, you see these five wonderful, beautiful, relatively squat homes. If you go, as you know, if you go— I know just where you're going. Exactly. If you go to and actually look in real life at that picture, there was like a 10-story apartment. It's about seven stories. There's six, five, six Mm stories. There's a giant apartment building butting up against the topmost painted lady. 
that has always cropped out of the picture yeah. because that's that's what we don't want to see. It doesn't fit our idealized view of things or I don't know what, what the reason is, but that has always cropped out of the picture. That is what, when San Francisco was a functional city, that is what it looked like. It had this mix of things. The, the neighborhoods had a lot of different kinds of types of housing mm-hmm. and a lot of different types of people because the, the person who can live in a two-story lovely painted lady home is different than the person who can live in a, an apartment building right next right, to it. Right. But those people are are linked through the economy, through different kinds of jobs, and like I just said. Yeah, and living next to each other. Living near each other. They also, the other part you're leaving out is Alamo Square. Is very A huge homeless population lives there and moves moves around it because the police keep trying to move people, which is also another picture when you're there. Exactly. When tourists are there, I'm always, they're always sort of like, what is happening here? I'm trying to take this beautiful shot of San Francisco, and there's tents and things like that, which, again, are moved daily. So we can we could talk forever about the policy stuff and how mm-hmm. the we could start going through an alphabet soup of acronyms. The California Environmental Quality Act and NIMBYism is it too hard and blah 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 blah. Right, but the truth is, and this is what I'm trying to get at in this book, San Francisco is just a window into. You could take that same alphabet soup apply it to any other city because look. Most cities in America, with the exception of possibly New York, and even a little bit there, if you go out to Queens and stuff, has this same pattern where they've, they make it very, very difficult to put density next to kind of lower density neighborhoods, and people don't like it. That problem that we make it very difficult to build where people already live is what gives us sprawl. It's what gives us freeways to know, or I guess not to nowhere, but to the mm. next suburb. It gives us all these other things. And it was funny. I was talking to an economist, or historian rather, for the book, and he said sprawl is a political contradiction because it— Meaning? Well, what he means is it is something everybody hates, and yet it also contains the conditions that makes it almost impossible to stop because people, as much as people hate sprawl, they would almost rather create sprawl than solve it, which which would mean building where they live. Right, where they are. And so we're sort of stuck in this thing. If we're going to solve climate change, if we're going to, well, if we're going to address all these big problems, we have a bifurcated society, housing that costs too much, emissions that are a third of them are mm-hmm. people driving or are, are transportation. Right. We're going to have to start basically addressing that people are going to have to live closer together and that our cities are going to have to be a little bit more compact. All right, we're going to talk about that when we get back because one of the important things to keep in mind is they are all, they're systemic. And that's the issue that I think a lot of people don't get, that housing has everything to do with climate change, which you were talking about, which has everything to do with sociological issues and drug addiction and way of life, which and creates these cities that are homogeneous and aren't as interesting as they used to be, um, or maybe they never were. Um, we're here with Connor Doherty, the author of Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing, In America, he's also a New York Times reporter who covers these issues. Businesses of all sizes count on IT heroes to save the day every day. And because there's no telling what the day will bring, you need a built-for-business PC solution that gives you security, performance, manageability, and stability no matter what stage you're in. Intel vPro is here to help. Intel vPro provides business class performance and reliability on powerful PCs that boost user productivity and satisfaction. And it offers multi-layer hardware-based security for below the OS protection, better application and data security, and advanced threat detection to help prevent issues before they happen. Whether the team is in office or working from home, security is the name of the game. The Intel vPro lets you remotely update, restore, and secure your business's PCs, even if they're outside the firewall. 
Plus, the integrated and validated platform helps ensure smooth PC fleet management and means you can maintain and scale PCs with confidence, helping you save the day, every day. Intel vPro, built for what IT heroes do, built for business. No product can be absolutely secure. Learn more at intel.com slash IT heroes. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're back and we're talking with Connor Doherty. He's the author of Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. So you do cover this day-to-day for the New York Times and you're, you you talk about this idea of income equality. You're just talking about the idea of a systemic way to deal with this. One of the things you do talk about in this book is that democracy really gets hurt by this housing crisis. So paint a larger picture of the housing crisis in America and how we live, how we're going to live together, and maybe some solutions and what you think is working. Or is it sort of this lost idea that we're just going to continue to create these bifurcated societies um, where I I just don't know how it it solves itself? So there's a lot of different things we could talk about with income inequality and stuff. But I think the best way to solve income inequality, um, this is not the same against programs or all this, mm-hmm. but I think the best way to solve income inequality is to make it possible for people to live near a place where they can get a great education, a place where they can live in a thriving economy with lots of different kinds of jobs, a place where they can get on the escalators to success, which are these tech companies, these mm-hmm. knowledge companies are the industrial powerhouses of our time. And just as your chances of making it further in life were enhanced by being near a manufacturing company in the 40s and 50s, being in Detroit or mm-hmm. one of these places that was building manufactured goods. These are now our industrial powerhouses, and you need to be near them. Most people need to be near them to get into the new economy. Well, let's talk about and solutions w- because yeah. one of the things, Scott Weiner, who's my uh, representative, I live in the Castro, San Francisco, oh, yes. um, or was my representative. Now he's a, oh, I guess he, I don't, he he's your state, state senator. State senator, right. He was my. He's the state senator for the entire city of San By the way, I should note, California State, a lot of people don't know this, California State Senators represent more people than members of the U.S. House of oh, Representatives. Oh, yeah, we know that. Yeah. <laughs> That's another system. It's kind of crazy. It's it like is a million crazy. people. He's got more people than Nancy Pelosi. So he was, he was my local, he was on the city council, and then now he's in the state. He had a bill that just failed. So talk about that. So this bill was called SB50, and it got a ton of attention nationally. Mm-hmm. And the He's basic, tried many times. We've talked, and, and he, I've talked about it. He's going to try again, I'm sure. The basic gist of the bill is it would make it possible, it would make it possible to four to eight story, or I think four story buildings within a half a mile of a transit stop, right. and also in uh, fancy school districts and stuff. So it's a 
totally reasonable solution to a problem, which is get people near public transit so that they can get into jobs um, and create a lot more housing so it's easy, so there's no commuting. So and on we, top of that, he's targeting that missing middle housing I was just telling about. He's <laughs> telling you about. He's not saying, let's go build a mega project in the middle of nowhere. He's saying, or not in the middle, of, but in a, in, a, in a place where people won't complain about it. Let's build a ton of mid-level things in neighborhoods where people already live. And this bill, uh, people went berserk. And what was fascinating about the bill, and this is something I spent a lot of time thinking about in the book, is that, and it all kind of came to a head in the bill, is that there's two main groups that oppose a lot of efforts to basically deregulate housing in cities. They are neighborhoods worried about gentrification, and they are kind of low-density neighborhoods worried about their views and neighborhood character and their property so values. And rich stuff people like and that. poor people. Rich people, and let's call them middle-class people, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that alliance, sometimes explicit and sometimes implicit, is, is very, very, very powerful. It's powerful for a couple reasons. It's powerful because it allows rich people to basically claim the mantle of gentrification when they're opposing a bill, which in California, where people have a, a high sensitivity to appearing woke is important. On top of that, it's it's just a large number of people, a large number of representatives kind of coming together. I understand and I, and I and I I put that that is politics. He's going to have to figure that out. And I but I think what the difficulty shows is that people don't and we've seen this throughout our society. People don't have a faith in the future. People don't believe that if as, the basic problem with SB 50 is that people simply don't believe it would work. Mm-hmm. I, I, I truly think that more than any one issue we could identify in the bill, I think people really think all this is going to lead to is a bunch of developers building a bunch of different types of stuff, and we're going to get more of the same. We're going to get more tech buses, more monoculture, more. And I don't, for what it's worth, think that's the case, mm-hmm. but I, it doesn't matter what I think. I, I just don't think people believe that it would work, and, so, that, and that's so, the problem. So what, some of the solutions being proposed is the state take over local, uh, local and you're seeing, decision-making. You're now seeing all the Democratic presidential candidates have, re, have released housing plans where they have some kind of zoning component in it. So we're now even seeing, not that this is imminent or anything, but we're now even seeing people contemplating the federal government taking over so mm-hmm. or having a role. So, uh, yeah, this is what always happens. Whenever a a level of government can't figure out a problem, Mm -hmm. people kick it up a notch and say, let's let's have a higher power figure it out because Mm -hmm. the more you spread it out. One of the the shifts was local decision-making on the ground in areas they know best was pushed locally for for many years. And you will hear hear local mayors say, we don't want more growth. Mm -hmm. We don't don't want more people. I mean, they will flat out say that. I don't think you'd ever hear a governor say that because jobs and prosperity are just so much more part of their— uh, their calling card. Well, talk about that with with London Breed in in San Francisco and the various players there. She has tried to put in. She, on one hand, she's tried to put in, and the other hand, she's against certain things. It's a real. It's really interesting to watch her sort of try to navigate. Explain her situation. So London Breed is the mayor of San Francisco. She is an African American woman who grew up in public housing and is from San Francisco. Uh, she has kind of embraced this mantle of development, and she's actually now pushing a ballot measure, which mm-hmm. we, of course, uh, have a, a lot of those in California. But basically, she will put in front of voters a a, a thing that would make it w- – would speed without getting into the details. It would take the 
development process from, say, two or three years, and sometimes quite a bit longer, to, like, say, six months. If you proposed a development on a parcel and it didn't require any changes or mm-hmm. height variations or anything like that, you could just do it. And and that would probably speed up development quite a lot. We'll see if it get, makes the ballot and has voters. But so she is she's essentially trying to end run this the board of super. She's trying to go around her legislator, right? To just say let's just make law through the voters because she's so frustrated with her own board kind of stymieing her at every. Which I think pass. people don't realize in San Francisco, the mayor has a lot less power than mayors of other cities, and the board tends to run everything. Yes. Well. Yeah. Totally. And. I think that there's a level of exhaustion right now with process, and she seems to be. I mean, look, you see this everywhere, right? Like SB 50 and all these things. In the in mm-hmm. three times, Scott Weiner has pushed versions of this bill. It, when it failed, the second after it failed, the president of the Senate, Tony Atkins, says, "We're going to pass something like this by the end of this year, so you guys better get ready." You, mm-hmm. you know, so all around, there is a, there is a level of exhaustion right now in California with inaction. So mm-hmm. I think that, and, and Governor Gavin Newsom, who has traditionally been this guy who shows up with a laundry list of things, oh, I'm going to solve health care, I'm going to solve this, I'm going to mm-hmm. solve, his last state of state speech, which was just last week, he did nothing but talk about homelessness and housing. So you were starting to see people at least recognize, okay, this is the only problem mm-hmm. that we should be focused on in this state right now, because all of our other problems uh, come from it. Emanate from this. I right. mean, California has some of the highest wages in the country. It has way outpaced the nation in, in every economic growth. metric, and it has the highest poverty rate when you adjust for the cost of housing. So we have basically created poverty By from an wealth. economy of that wealth. should yes. be like a beacon for the nation. Right. So, so, talk, so you asked what's working. I want to talk about what's working, but explain that because now uh, Republicans, especially Donald Trump, have oh. focused in on it. Yeah. So comment on that. Some of what Donald Trump is doing is just mean-spirited and let's call it That's trolling. A surprise. Right? So wow. a lot of what they're doing, some of that is trolling, and you'll see Tucker Carlson and all these. So, But a lot of what the, the kind of more conservative side is saying is that some of these liberal good intentions have gone there is some truth in that and i i i think it 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 annoys people that there is some truth in it because take environmentalism there's this kind of like 1970s notion of environmentalism that environmentalism means great parks down the street from you and a place to walk your dog and that sort of thing but that's not necessarily green if you're worried about climate change mm-hmm. And it's not green if you're worried about sprawl. It's not, right? And I think sometimes it is it is absolutely a fair thing to say, has that gone too far? And is that focused on the wrong things? When that comes out of the mouth of a of a person like Scott Wiener, mm-hmm. people don't love it, but I guess they kind of accept it because he's this, you know, anti-death penalty, raise every tax gay man who marches in the bondage parade in San mm-hmm. Francisco, right? So, but when it comes out of the mouth of Donald Trump or or someone from his administration, they don't want to hear it. But that's just, but there are, there is some truth to this idea that California has dug itself deeper into this problem than it would otherwise be. And I I think that at some point we do have to reconcile with that. And it's not like anybody in the Trump administration seems to have thought this through super deeply. So I think dismissing some of their critiques is completely appropriate. But this idea that California has overregulated housing, made it too difficult to build the types of housing the middle class people 
could live in. There was a lot of truth to that, and we kind of have to own up to it. So when you talk about solutions, mm-hmm. what are they? What can happen? You have, you know, you have the political uh, pressure from the national attention on this on this state. Like here's, and it's not just in in San Francisco; it's in Los Angeles. Most of the homeless people in this country live in California, which is, I think, people don't realize um, the great majority of them. Half of the unsheltered homeless, which is people who are mm-hmm. straight up outside in their cars or under bridges or in on the sidewalk, half, about 100,000 of the 200,000 are in California. And that is because not just weather, but other... It is because it costs a lot to live in California, mm-hmm. pure and simple. Everything I've ever seen says that homelessness is heavily tied to the cost of housing. Again, it's not to say drug addiction and these other things don't play into it, but those are just things that make it difficult for someone to hold down a job or otherwise get it to hold in a place, the cost of housing ends up being the the main variable. Because like I said, they have people with mental difficulties and drug problems everywhere. So when you're thinking about solutions, what if you could wave your wand, if you could do anything, or if there's a person that you covered that you think is the the right way, tell me about it. If I could wave my wand, I would make it much easier to build housing and build different types of housing. And I would come up with some sort of gigantic federal program, one that had the word trillion in it, and start to provide a huge subsidy program for people who truly cannot afford what the market is currently building. There has not been some time. So one thing that people, one reason people in the anti-gentrification camp do not like new housing is that it tends to be more expensive, more expensive than and, and so they worry that it will make housing next to it expensive as well. There's very little evidence that that's true. Nevertheless, that's the fear. But there was not some time when we built lots of brand new lovely housing and it was ex- affordable for everybody. Mm-hmm. It has always, it has mostly been the case that the way we create affordable housing is we build a lot of housing, it gets older, and, and, then, and then it moves down the income scale. We stopped doing that. We haven't right. done— It's actually the opposite. People exactly. People are now moving back into those Exactly. Areas. So we did not build enough housing, so we're in a deep hole. We have to get out of that hole. While we are getting out of that hole, we are going to have to make housing more affordable for people who can't afford it. And this isn't just—I mean, there's all sorts of reasons to do this. When I was following that family as they were being displaced by this $800 rent increase, that daughter— a 15-year-old girl, she lost a month of school. She was completely stressed, unable to function in any way. The heartbreak and the trauma that they had for the year after the eviction was crippling. So she's, if I had lost them, I had two parents who helped me with my homework and everything like that. If I had lost a month of school, it might have been difficult to catch up. I mean, I can't mm-hmm. even imagine. No, the repercussions are yeah, massive. And, and those are repercussions that we will feel for many, many, many years possibly generations. So stabilizing people in their home is imperative. Right now, the popular solution is rent control. Mm -hmm. That is a solution that a lot of economists have some problems with, but I don't know what to say other than that that is the main solution that is there for people. And unless we pass some gigantic tax program, which probably would be the smarter way to do it, that is one of the things we're going to have to engage. Or it doesn't matter... That is the thing people are going to engage. It doesn't matter what I think. So if I could wave my magic wand, I would make it much easier to build housing, and I would enact a gigantic program at a federal level 
to help people who cannot afford what the market is currently building. Is there is there any tech solution? Uh, so one of the things that I that was actually very encouraged by was there was a guy I followed through the through the book, and he has started a factory, and this is happening mm-hmm. in various different places, where they build buildings, really. Not, it's not just like a house. They build apartments on an assembly line, and it, it was, it's a remarkable thing. You go to this factory, and it's in an old, it's where they used to make submarine periscopes, so it's a very long factory <laughs> uh, in a naval base, old naval base on Mare Island and in Vallejo. And it starts, and there's just this piece of plywood, and it comes up like a little conveyor belt type mm-hmm. thing. And then it moves up to a dolly, and two guys are below putting in pipes and stuff that will mm-hmm. be the plumbing. And then somebody's up putting flooring, and it just goes in 22 steps. By the end, it's this apartment that you're walking around. And there's tw- Everything is there besides the water doesn't work. And then they, t- they drive this out on a truck to a site. They stack them together like Legos, and then they bolt them together. And it takes a couple more months to really make the building work, but they can actually put the whole building up in like a a day. Mm -hmm. I was really encouraged by this because the main engine of prosperity for all of human existence has been making it easier to do work, whether it's animals pulling your plow or tractors or Mm -hmm. whatever else. And... Construction has been one of the least productive. Exactly. I call it artisanal. It is. It's one of the least productive industries. Yeah. And so we need to find a way to make it actually just much easier and faster Mm -hmm. to build just a building. So a decent building too, where you could have a lot of stuff. And I should also say, one of the things I love, and I know you love this too, because I've listened to your show, is when people start putting significant money and risk and gumption behind something that really is an audacious tech solution. It's not just another Twitter. Mm-hmm. That's one of the re- reasons, despite his, some of his personal kind of quirks, I love Elon Musk because I think mm-hmm. if Tesla goes bankrupt and this is all for naught, we at least got a really great battery out of it. Right. right? I mean, like the world yeah, will is, have— he is audacious in a good way. The world will have gotten something out of yeah. that. And if Whether all these investors— yeah. yeah, and if all these investors lose money, they will still have contributed something. Mm-hmm. And I think the same way about these housing companies, that they, they're putting a ton of money uh, behind this big idea, and they will figure something out. And right. it's a great place to be tinkering because it's a place where we actually know that productivity is, is quite low. And if they can start to move that needle, it will have a tremendous benefit to the world. Agreed. I don't know that the world was having such a difficult time efficiently selling ads that we needed. I mean, I'm sure it has become more efficient, but it's like 1% more efficient. You know, so I love it when I see people put real money behind ideas that seem more space agey and 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 oh no, there's a better way to build yeah, a house. Yeah, there is. I I'm spent a lot of time. I'm a real estate person. And I well, and when it comes out yeah. of the tech, when it comes out of the 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 phone and into the real mm-hmm. world, I think we all find it more imaginatively stimulating. That's funny. There are a lot of solutions. So finish up. If you had to pick, you know, what's going to happen to each of the characters? Give give me two opposing characters who you think sort of exemplify this fight for housing. Sonia's obviously one of them. Yeah. It's funny. When I finished this book and I've been doing this tour, there's all these moments where you realize like, oh, wait, this is what the book is about, Mm -hmm. which you didn't like realize as you were writing it, which is kind of a terrifying feeling, but also something I've heard is common. You look at cities 
and most of the landmass is single-family homes. Mm-hmm. Those that is the dominating political force. It is yes, the dominating. Yes, everyone must own a home. It is the dominating geographical force. It is the dominating cultural force. Mm-hmm. If we're going to change the politics, changing that dynamic is paramount. Best I can tell, the only way to do that is to take the let's call them the gentrified and the gentrifiers, and somehow get them on the same side. Somehow get them to create a political coalition that says, we are the ones being left out right now, Mm -hmm. and we need solutions, and you're going to have to share some of the space in this city for us. Mm -hmm. So when I think about two characters that are on the opposing sides of this, I think about Sonia and and Barf and its associated... uh, the Yimby movement, yes, in my backyard, and its associated people, which are tend to be younger tech people who do fine but are not rich by any means. And then I think about the people who are protesting them, uh, gentrification, who are worried about that, who feel like they're being pushed out of the city. Somehow, those two groups need to find some kind of common cause. Mm-hmm. Because there's no the, the the dominating force of the single family home kind of empire, if you will, is so large and so powerful that if those two groups spend all their time fixating on each other, they will never accomplish anything. Well, it's the American dream. Right. Well, I'm we not need saying, a new dream. I'm not saying we need saying. to get rid of the dream. I'm more no, saying that you, you need, need a new dream. I think ownership. By the way, I think ownership is we can't just throw away ownership. Mm-hmm. What I'm more saying is that we need to have cities that are more dynamic and the space is changing and right. uh, and, and that sort of thing. Well, and when you think about movies and, you know, if you look at sci-fi movies, the way they uh, portray housing, I spent a lot of time thinking about, like, what do you— re- I actually, the other day, I was like, do we need to own houses? Like, because we don't own cars, you know, because I'm not owning a car now. I rent a lot of stuff. And I was like, what about housing? Do we actually have to not just rent, but is there a different way to do renting? Like, that you do- and everybody doesn't need to own a home because now it's been the—it's the wealth generator now totally. for everybody. Well, what you've also seen, though, and I think this is why the tech industry was initially a little exhausted by this thing— mm-hmm is you have to kind of go mix it up in local politics at a very micro level. And I think for tech executives and this industry that is so global and so large and it crosses cultures, it's very hard for them to get revved up about, I'm going to go to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors Mm -hmm. and, you know, or the Mountain View City Council, right? Mm -hmm. But you're actually starting to see that now. Patrick Collison, Head of Stripe? Yes, the head of Stripe, of Stripe gave a million dollars, or the Stripe, the company, gave a million dollars to California EMB, which is a statewide organization. Jeremy, of course, gave all this money. You are actually starting to see these companies become very thoughtful and active, not as much as they could be, but about the, the places that they actually are. Mm-hmm. I think Jeff Bezos has done some stuff in Seattle. Controversial. And Well, but fine. I mean, I don't know that what people in Detroit did a million years ago was not controversial either. I mean, <laughs> That's so, a fair point. Colin. Yeah, I just, I just think, and by the way, I, I want to say one thing. A lot of times in San Francisco and in other cities, tech, but let's just focus on San Francisco for a moment, is portrayed as this invading outside force. Mm-hmm. It's this thing that imposes, oh, Mark Zuckerberg, he moved here from Harvard and is imposing himself. Mm-hmm. That view could like not be more wrong. 
This industry, or at least the conditions that created this industry, are at least a century old. They're probably longer. And it has been anchored in this region. It has been the primary economic engine for that region mm-hmm. for quite some time. Right. And when you look at that region, you see institutions, Stanford, the venture capital industry, Berkeley, Kepler's Bookstore, which is a little bookstore in Menlo Park where the counterculture met the, kind of the military-industrial complex. You take Kepler's, which is where the Grateful Dead, I think, met each other, mm-hmm. and but then also where a lot of kind of computer people hung out. You mix those two things, the kind of military-industrial complex and park research lab and all that, and then you mix this kind of counterculture thing. You smash those things together. What do you get? You get Steve Jobs. And there are so many different impossible to replicate things in this region that are merging kind of this counterculture Mm -hmm. with this basically military spending, but now corporate spending. And that is what makes the place the place. Yep. And if it's a Frankenstein, it's our Frankenstein. And I think that people try to portray it as this outside thing, but it is our thing. That's exactly right. And I just feel like that is so missing. And you know what it is? It's kind of the mirror image. For years and years and years and years, decades, you would hear people say, oh, we're going to create the Silicon Valley in whatever, Youngstown, yeah. Ohio or something. Right. And it was impossible. Right. It's impossible because of all the things I just said. But the flip side is it's impossible to get rid of it as well. Right. It is our thing. And if you think that that place is exceptional and interesting and special and that it has this wonderful mix of culture and ideas, those things are they are as fundamental to that industry as they are to the culture. Right. And I, I, I get frustrated sometimes, but par- partly because I'm a native Californian and I'm so aware of this history and how old that industry is that I, I just, I think that people are going to have to reconcile it with it as if it's their uncle, their family, rather than treating it like it's this invader. Right. That is a really good way to put it. Absolutely. California is still the greatest place on earth. I miss it so much when I'm out there. It's really astonishing. And it's really, there are so many creative solutions that could be brought to bear to this and show a way for the rest of the country, I think, in lots of ways in terms of how we deal with people living together of different economic levels and how we pull everybody up. And it's it's important that it, it works in California. That's my feeling. I think so, too. I mean, I'm a, I'm kind of a, a local child. You know, I'm, I'm still very provincial in my thinking. Mm-hmm. I skateboard. I have had the same haircut since I was 10 years old. <laughs> I, I'm, I live a couple blocks from my dad. Uh-huh. You know, or I, I guess I live in Oakland now, so no more. But my dad lives in Noe Valley. And uh, so I, I, and I do think that it's funny. People will say, where is doing this right? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's a question I get a lot. And I don't have a perfect answer. But I kind of say to myself, well, have we ever asked ourselves, there's a lot of things we did first. Couldn't we do this first too? Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, so I tend to be optimistic because right now we're talking about this a lot and mm-hmm. we are exhausted by this. We're, uh, the shame we feel walking around and seeing so many homeless people, the the disappointment we have with our own monoculture, uh, I think that people are starting to think that there must be a better way and we it's on us to find it. That's a really good way to end. Thank you, Connor. Thank you, Connor Doherty, his book is about homelessness, it's about uh, housing, and it's about the way we think of 
our societies and how we want to build them. It's called Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. Thanks, Kara. Thanks for coming. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Connor, where can people find you and your book online? I am at at Connor Doherty, which is C-O-N-O-R-D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y. And... There is a search engine called Google, and if you do Golden Gates <laughs> Fighting for Housing in America, you will find it. Or buy it at a local bookstore. Exactly. You can go to a local bookstore. It's, it's in all sorts of places. All right. If you like this episode, we really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. 